Boom, boom, boom. Welcome back to the Awesome Boom podcast. And thank you so much once again for tuning back in. I hope you're prepared. This is a slightly long podcast. This is almost Joe Rogan in length kind of thing. It's uh, punches on for pretty much three hours, guys. And uh, it's a fascinating conversation with Carly and I. Carly was literally the first person in the UK to be legally prescribed medical cannabis. So she uh, goes into depth about her story, how she found herself to be the first person to uh, be prescribed medical cannabis and um, how ultimately she's now back having to buy it off the streets, which is a fairly sort of a shocking state of affairs considering the British government did actually legalise it last November. So over sort of eight months ago and sadly medical patients here in the UK are still forced to go out and break the law and to purchase their medicine from street dealers, which I personally think is an absolutely, completely barbaric, ridiculous system. And I'm sure lots and lots of you will agree. But before we start the podcast, I just want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, Canico. Canico is a leading UK CBD brand here in London, and they stock a plethora of fantastic products, be it your cannabis flowers, your CBD cannabis flowers, to your balms, to your tinctures, to your gel caps, etc. So check them out on Instagram. It's just canico.cbd or the website is canico.co.uk. Right, now we've got that out of the way, let's get straight into this fantastic podcast. Oh, bless. You are cute, aren't you? I really want to get a dog. I just don't have the lifestyle for it. Mm. Yeah, I think it'd be tricky. Well, yeah. I've got no garden. I think I'd find it tricky in the city. Mm. I want to get a little working Springer Spaniel. Yeah, you need somewhere to burn them off. Like, because they can go, can't they? Yeah. I was at a friend all of, day. All day. I was at a friend of mine's wedding the other other weekend and uh, down in the Cotswolds and nice. it was at a brother's farm, a nice sort of marquee and tent and they had this beautiful little um, brown working Cocker Spaniel or Springer Spaniel, one of the two, Cocker Springer, whatever. And this little thing didn't stop. So like literally nose to the floor, just constantly whizzing yeah, around the place, just absolutely full on. And I was speaking to Charlie, the brother, and he's like, um, I was like, oh, I want your dog. And he's like, she's a bloody nightmare. Stick with labs. Labradors <laughs> yeah, are much better. lazier. He's like, she's a nightmare. Yeah. Constant, constant on a mission. So, um, but, but maybe that'd be good for you, like, at three in the morning when you can't sleep. You could go and take the dog for, like, a mammoth walk round. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I love about London, though, when it, in, in the early hours. I bet it's really nice, isn't it? Beginning of the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays. Not a weekend, but... Early you know, hours yeah. is just gorgeous. You, you don't see a soul. Mm. Especially at three, at three o'clock in the morning. No one, no one, no one's up. It's before the bin men, that. Yeah. And it is absolutely gorgeous. Like, really, really pleasant. I'm just like, yes, this is London mm. at its finest. Without any people. <laughs> take the people away and it's lovely. Take, take, take <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think in probably most situations, I'd be like, if we can just remove the people. Yeah. Then it, and fill it with dogs, then we're cool. Yeah, dogs and cats maybe. Mm-hmm. Although I've had a funny, funny sort of like relationship with cats for a long time. I wasn't really into cats, and then a few years ago, I took my wife to Ibiza for her thirtieth. And on our first night, we'd gone up 
into the sort of castle area and found this really nice restaurant. We had a really nice meal. I was a bit pissed when I was coming back down the hill. And I could see in the distance this bright white cat just sort of sat on this wall. And I was like, oh, she looks cute. So I walked over to this cat and this cat literally just like submiss. It was like rolled on its back, just sort of flirting. We go, and I went in for a stroke like this. My God, this vicious little sod. <laughs> yeah, they do. They wrapped can, itself yeah. around my hand, biting and scratching me, just left me like blooded everywhere and scarpered off. I was like, you fucker. Very nearly took my shoe off. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. You completely bitched me. Yeah. So, anyway, let's uh, let's get the uh, yeah. podcast yeah. underway. <laughs> um, welcome back to the Awesome Boom podcast. I'm here with my friend Carly. Uh, Carly, thank you very much for agreeing to uh, join me on the podcast this morning. It's super exciting to be in Brighton. Yeah, you're more than welcome. It's great to have you here. So, thank you very much. So, we're going to be talking about all sorts of things today, I think, aren't we? So, um, yeah, who knows? Who knows? We're just going to go with the flow and see see what happens. But um, I think what a lot of people would be really fascinated in is that you are, uh, you were the first and only person at, for a period of time to be legally prescribed medical cannabis. Yeah. And as you said shortly, short while ago, you sort of said you were actually the only person who was legally allowed to walk around with cannabis flowers in the UK. Yeah. For I a think, number of weeks. So that, yeah. must have, that must have felt quite weird, right? Yeah, I think it was a couple, I think it was like a fortnight between my medicine being dispensed and the sort of second person down the line to be dispensed. So yeah, I was walking around quite proudly showing whoever, <laughs> just bump into people and get it, whip it out. <laughs> I was just whipping it out left, right and centre because I could. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was a little bit strange. Um, yeah, I think I think that month was an interesting month to see I think there was a there was a bit of a battle actually in me because I was quite like I wanted to to show people and normalize it and be able to you know get it out everywhere and and you know have that um experience of of just normal normal life with cannabis um but also then there was this sort of like cloud of everybody who I know could benefit from this and people that I know were still being criminalized and that was something that weighed quite heavy on me throughout that that month when I um, had the legal medicine, um, but you know I'm back on the criminal market with everyone else now, so that's okay. So, because um, I mean, most people obviously have absolutely no idea what legal medical cannabis even looks like. I mean, yeah. you know, how, how did that rock up? Was it in a pill form, or was it literally just herbs? Yeah, like we so buy comes, on the street. Yeah, so it comes in a little pot, little plastic pot. Um, I was prescribed two types of cannabis flower. So there was a 22% sativa, which I think I believe is a Jack Herrera cross, which is Bedrican. Um, and there was a 14% indica flower, which comes pre-ground. So it just looks like you've ground your cannabis. Mm. Um, and that comes in a pot as well. And that was called Bedica, which I believe is a Kush cross or a cross of two Kushes. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, it's just like a little pot of cannabis, I guess. So, so for normal everyday folk like yeah. us who have to, who probably never been described prescribed medical cannabis, was it exactly the same sort of experience? There's nothing. There's nothing yeah. special, or different about no, it. No, there was nothing special or different about it. I guess the um, whatever is in your head, like what does cannabis look like in your head? It looks like that, mm. um, and it smelled like that. Um, 
the the sort of pre-ground Bedeker didn't wasn't particularly smelly because it'd been pre-ground, so it lost a lot of its terpenes in the in the process. But apart from that, I mean, it it looks like cannabis. It is cannabis. It vapes like cannabis, um, and it did the same job. Um, I'd say I have got much better relief from other strains that I've sourced on the black market. Mm. Um, but that is preference, I guess. I think it's difficult. It's going to be difficult to implement this so that there are uh, that there is a library of strains that are going to be suitable for a number of patients with a number of conditions. I think you know. I, I think probably there's only a few countries at the moment that have that. Yeah, I think I think I think that's one of the major the major issues when when we went down that sort of whole route of sort of asking for medical cannabis mm. is that. Again, as we know, everything is subjective and personal to us because we're all completely individual. And, you know, just because one strain, say, works for a number of people in a lab condition, yeah, then they sort of roll out that this one strain will work for, you know, X amount of thousand people when it doesn't at all. And it's mm. interesting you sort of mentioning about the pre-ground cannabis, medical cannabis, not smelling so much. So, so it's obviously lost its terpene profile mm. due to being sort of pre-ground and probably dried out quite sufficiently because i think you know from my experience is that actually the terpenes are so important and so add so much value to the medicinal plant itself and to the experience and the pain relief or whatever you're using it for that i think it's a shame that say a company like bedrican who are i guess one of the global market leaders in this field Mm. you know haven't maybe thought about that yeah as, no, absolutely. As such, you know. I mean, the Bedrocan itself, the, the the Jack Herrera, is very, very limonene heavy. It's quite very lemony when you smell it. Um, that one has held its terpenes, but they, you know, they distribute that as full bud. Um, but it both, in, in all cases with flour, it's irradiated before it, you know, before it gets to the patient, which actually I was slightly scared of. I was wondering if I was going to go blue or things were going to start dropping so off. So when you say that, what 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 does that mean to the, the, the common person radiated? It irradiated. So they so they sort of clean up the cannabis bud with um, radiation before <laughs> I know it's I know. I'm, um, I'm pulling a really funny face. Yeah, he's pulling a funny face. <laughs> um, it's kind of like uh, the last thing that you want to be inhaling is something that's been irradiated but i'm 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 told from lots of people that know more about uh science than me that that that's fine that it's perfectly safe um but i believe that it removes some of the um contaminants or toxins or whatever that could be present um i'm assuming it's the mold so i think it's the same process that they put um like surgical equipment through in hospitals okay yeah that makes sense i guess i guess you'd sort of kind of I guess a lot of people who've probably been growing, you know, cannabis themselves for a while would, I guess, feel a little bit uneasy that maybe a company <laughs> like Bedrican might have mould on their products mm. in the first place, because obviously that's something that you can mm. control. Absolutely. And I think we saw when Maybe they, it's just a precaution. Maybe it's just a precaution. I think it's probably to do with whoever, wherever they're exporting it to, it'll be that country's sort of like conditions mm. that it needs to be completely clean and have as much contaminants removed as possible i think that's probably more to do with their um it's probably more to do with that but you know we saw when they you know they did a little shoot at gw that 
things aren't aren't particularly great in you know in those big grow facilities. I think we are, are zoomed you, are, in. Are, are you referencing the the spider? Mic? Yeah, I am referencing the spider gate. Spider gate. <laughs> but again, you know, I mean, that is that is concerning for those of you who don't who don't know what we're referencing. There was a photo in um, a major national newspaper mm. after they're doing a, uh, an article on GW Pharmaceuticals. So GW Pharmaceuticals are one of the largest providers of medical cannabis in the UK and globally as they export their two products, Sativex and Epidolex. And um, this photo sort of showed that their crop was covered in spider mite Mm. or what appeared, let's say, appeared to uh, look like spider mite. We don't want to make any accusations. And um, (laughs) that that photo went throughout the whole cannabis community like wildfire. Yeah. And that's concerning because, I mean, spider mite, you know, how do you get, you can't get rid of that. That's, uh, I mean, I think most, most illegal growers would uh, throw that all away. Oh, yeah. Burn no, it, absolutely. You know, they can't sell it. Yeah, absolutely. I think because they, you know, they use, they extract it and they put, they put it through so many processes before it gets turned into Sativex that they're probably not that bothered about what's on the plant. But to my mind, if you're going to make a medicine, then you should be, you should care about the whole process, including what you're spraying on it, what you're not spraying on it, what's in the soil, what you're feeding it, what light it's getting. It's all super important, particularly when we're talking about using a plant medicine as a legitimate medicine. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, I think I think it did get some giggles out of the uh, out of the people that have been illegally growing without spider mites for some time. <laughs> I know maybe GW Pharmaceuticals should be sort of trying to recruit some uh, expert growers from the UK cannabis community because uh, yeah, if you're listening, we can provide you with our uh, contact book. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's. Uh, this is a crazy thing, is that you know actually, um, and I've I've spoken to you know large international companies who who legally grow around the world, mm. and um, the general consensus is, is actually the, the us Brits are actually one of the best growers, some of the best growers in the world. Oh, absolutely! Very, very high yeah. standards, and um, I think it's a real shame that we've obviously got hundreds of thousands of amazing growers out there who are completely passionate about their craft, and then you've got companies like GW Pharmaceuticals, you know, whole warehouses full of spider mite-ridden cannabis. It's it's sort of almost like a fundamental early years errors. Yeah. You know, oh, absolutely! You're, you're like cripes, you know. You've been in. I mean, how long have they been in business now? I mean, well over a decade. Ninety-six or ninety-eight. I was. Yeah, so I mean, a long time. You know, twenty years, mm. and um, they still they still have spider mite, which is a which could, which is concerning. But no judgment from me, I guess. Um, so, how did you how did you get into using cannabis? Why? What what started you off on this journey? The so. I guess I usually start when I when I tell my story. I usually start at the point where I had a stroke when I was twenty four. But actually, my journey with my health and with cannabis started way before that. So maybe I should maybe I should take this opportunity while we're not <laughs> while we haven't got a, a time limit to. There is no to talk time limit. That. We could we can do a Joe Rogan length podcast so, if you want. Awesome. So um, I was twenty one. Um, and I was living in um, up north, and I had some bruising on my legs that just looked a bit weird. Nobody really knew what it was. Spoke to doctors, no one knew what it was. And over the period of a couple of weeks, I deteriorated to the point where I can't, I can't really describe how I felt. I felt like I was dying, 
It was a very strange sensation. I kept going to the doctor saying, something's not right, something's not right. They didn't know what was going on. Anyway, and then I, they sent me to the hospital to get a blood test. So I went to the hospital, I got the bus, and I got off the other end, and they took my blood. And then I was sat in this waiting room on my own in Warrington Hospital, and they rushed in, big team of doctors, and told me to lie down on the bed and don't move. And I was like, okay. Uh-oh. And the, the first thing they said to me was, um, we don't think you've got leukemia, but it's something quite similar and it's not good. So I was like, oh shit, right. So I was 21. I was like, what? This can't be like, what? So they said, basically, you need to lie down still because you're, you're internally bleeding. Like all, every, all of your organs are bleeding out right now. Um, we don't know how you've walked yourself into this hospital. You shouldn't be able to walk. Um, the you know your platelets are so low, um, and you know your hemoglobin's so low. You've got you've got no blood in your system. And I was like, okay. So um, so they then diagnosed. So then they had to take me to this specialist hospital in Liverpool, which was quite far away from where I lived at the time, and that's where I stayed for almost twelve months in treatment uh, on a chemo ward. So yeah, twelve twelve months in hospital. Yeah, yeah. They, I, I was let out for a, a, a four weeks, I thought, for a period of four weeks, but then I relapsed shortly after. So they diagnosed me with this really weird condition, and it's called TTP, or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. And what that basically means is um, that your platelets stick together, and they charge around your sort of body, and in doing that, they smash all of your, uh, you know, your other cells to bits, and you... You don't have any clotting. You don't. You don't have anything that's stopping your body from just. It's the only reason your your lungs don't bleed or everything doesn't bleed is because you've got clotting um, factors. But I didn't have that, mm. so I had no platelets and no blood. And so basically, what they had to do is every day, is they put a line into my heart and they um, put you on this big machine. It looks like something out of Doctor Who. It's like this big chunky. They wheel it in. It's like a whole room. Like they wheel this bloody thing in. This, these little bloody blood nurses, and they hook you up to this machine. And what it does is so clever. It takes all of the blood out of your system and puts it into this machine. And it whizzes it round, cleans it, and then puts it all back in um, with new platelets, like fresh plasma. Sorry, not platelets. Um, so so the, the the plasma would have come from a donor. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Got you. So I had roughly about four, four to five bags of donor blood a day for that whole time, and four, three or four bags of plasma a day to keep me alive. Um, and that machine took about six hours, and it was exhausting. You're on it, and it just, it just makes you feel exhausted. So, so yeah, so that happened. Now they couldn't find out. This is an autoimmune um, response. Um, and you know not many people survive it really because when it comes on it comes on and you just bleed to death and that's it curtains um but so they couldn't find out why this was happening which was they were just like we don't know and then i was about eight or nine months into treatment and they found a massive tumor on my ovary like the size of a grapefruit and i was like well you could have looked there sooner <laughs> I was, so, I was, was, was going to say, how do you sort of miss a grapefruit-sized yeah, tumour? Well, I didn't know it was there. They did. A, they did a whole body scan. They were like, you know, we don't know why. We we don't know why you're not going into remission. Um, 
I think I was at that point the longest standing patient on the chemo ward that they'd had. Um, and uh, yeah, so they found this tumour and they transferred me to another hospital where they whipped the tumour out, quick smart. And then I, I came back and they put me back on the machine for a couple of months and I went into remission. Um, but that, you know, that experience is something that I don't often talk about because it's very traumatic and it shaped how I see illness and how I actually how I see life because I don't I don't think you really get to grips with what it means to live until you face somebody saying you know we don't think you're going to make it you know that that's a big experience but when they say in that they're saying that quite often and then you're confronted with people you know, you, you're sleeping in a bay of three other people and, you know, none of them survive. And you watch them go into cardiac arrest and you watch them be resuscitated and you watch them go through chemo and shit themselves on the floor. And there's something really raw about being in there. And it's something that I actually am honoured to have been able to experience because who gets the opportunity at 21 to be able to look death in the face like and also be able to see humanity in their like in it, all of its in that hospital i saw the best best moments of people's lives and i saw the absolute worst and that um experiences yeah that has totally stayed with me um but yeah so so i guess what my first exposure to cannabis as medicine was on that ward and not on it wasn't in a um you know people weren't outwardly consuming cannabis but there was sort of whispers about people who were having chemo about oh you know to help with the nausea to you know help with the side effects and things like that and i just sort of you know it sort of just passed me by as just another conversation that was happening on the ward and something that wouldn't um, wouldn't come back to me until much later down the line. And you hadn't you hadn't had a relationship with cannabis before that. I mean, I'd consumed as a, a teenager, yeah, just like everybody does. But I'd sort of picked it up and put it back down and thought that's not for me. And it wasn't something that was really on my on my agenda or in my eyesight really um i was a bit more of a boozy sort of party girl when i was 21 like i was in the clubs and you know i i was a bit more active than than with my friends that used to go and just chill and watch a film and maybe cook i was i was too busy doing other things at that point um, so yeah, I guess that was probably the first time I think that I ever heard anybody reference cannabis and connect it with medicine. And that's something that's only just sort of come back into my experience more recently. Um, uh, when my next door neighbor, um, had a leukemia diagnosis and came over and said, I know you know a lot about cannabis. And this is this is very recent, by the way, so I'm zooming forward 10 years. But 
uh, it sort of completes the circle in a way in that it sort of started on that ward with people talking about it for leukemia and then very recently my neighbour who is just there um, his leukemia returned and he came over and said they're not going to offer me chemo this time is there anything you can help me can you help me I said yeah come on I'll you know I'll go and get some cannabis we'll cook it up in the kitchen let's let's make you some oil and I made him some oil and um and it was interesting because it brought back a lot of those memories of seeing friends, people I've lived with, I'd lived with these people for a year, who who had then sadly lost, and you know who I still I still love and care about. It brought back those feelings of you know I wish I knew how to do this, how to make this all for them, at, you know, at that time ten years ago. But anyway, I made the oil and. Um, he had a little bit of treatment from the hospital, but he stayed on the oil for three months and then he got the oil clear and he's now in complete remission. So, that's incredible. So, yeah. so that, that's, um, a, that's, that's, that's a good story. Yeah. It's always nice to hear these so sort of, sort of, success stories. Yeah. So it's sort of come full circle in that line of sight for me. But skipping back, there's, you know, we were talking about before we put the microphone on how you know, trauma tends to sort of bite you in the bum a few years afterwards. And it was, I think it was sort of three years after that experience. I'd moved then to Brighton. I'd met my wife. We, we'd set up this really great sort of creative little business. We were showing artwork. We were, you know, we were making installations together. We showed at the Tate Britain. I showed some work at the Saatchi. We were, everything was fabulous. I was 24 and I had a stroke. Uh, just one night, just sat on the couch, watching a bit of TV. Just had a stroke, just like you do. Um, and I don't, we didn't know what had happened. Like afterwards, I went to bed, which I'm told is like the worst thing you can do. Well, I didn't go to the hospital till the next day because we didn't really. I just, I called it a funny turn. I was like, oh, it's a funny turn. Um, but following that, I, you know, I woke up with some really horrible, uh, like weakness. Like I couldn't really use my arm properly. I was trying to drill, actually. I went back to the studio. I was trying to do a bit of carpentry and I was trying to join two, uh, pieces of wood together and I couldn't get the drill to work at that, at which point my drill was the extension of my arm. Like I had power tools in my hand all the time. Yeah. So the fact that I couldn't do this thing that was very natural to me. It was clear that something was wrong. I went to the hospital and they they said, oh, we think you've had a stroke, which was quite a shock at 24, but not completely because I'd had a blood condition that caused, caused, that caused clotting issues previous. Um, so, yeah, so after the stroke, I was just left with weird symptoms, really strange, really neuropathic, quite sort of, brain-centered symptoms so issues with cognition you know language word finding it was just like a game of charades in our house so like I couldn't remember the name for plate I'd have to be like the thing that you put your food on it's white you know it's made of pot like you know you, you, I could think of every word but the word I wanted it was just like the weirdest weirdest bloody torturous game show in our in our little flat <laughs> poor Gemma having to sit there after work and guess what I'm trying to say but anyway um so yeah and then but the the biggest issue was the pain was the neuropathic pain because it literally would take over the whole of my body and it was so intense and searing it would burn 
it felt like all of my bones were on fire and it would shoot and stab and it, it was horrible. It was just like being beaten, but with sharp things a lot. Um, I just, I, yeah, I mean, I, I just, um, you know, I've experienced pain in my life from, you know, various accidents, but yeah, I remember when you sort of said to me not so long ago, we, or I think I read on one of your posts, you know, it feels like my bones are on fire and I was just like, I can't, I can't even get my head around that. Like literally, yeah. I just, I can't imagine what that must feel like. And, you know, living with that sort of pain, that sort of, that depth of pain must just be absolutely exhausting. It is, it's exhausting. And it, it takes over everything because you can't think because you're in pain, you can't eat because you're in pain, you can't sleep. These are really, like really simple human activities. You know, you can't, you can't listen to people properly. That was the biggest, the big thing because I love talking to people. I can't, I can't listen to people probably because I'm so distracted by it. And it became just completely, I was just miserable. I was so miserable. Um, and I put off going on strong painkillers. You know, I did suffer for a couple of years because I didn't want to go on them. I'd had morphine before in hospital the first time. And to be honest, I thought, that's not good for me. It's a bit too good that morphine. It feels a bit too nice. It does, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, I've had I've had um, I've had issues with painkillers before in my life early earlier years. I had a um, I was involved in a sort of car accident mm. and uh, created a lot of pain in my upper and lower back. Yeah. And um, yeah, I developed a dependency on um, opiate-based painkillers, mm, like tramadols and stuff. Yeah, tramadols, codeine. Codeine, yeah, codeine's cla- nasty. Class, classic one. Um, yeah, and I, I realised that it was it was very easy to become very, very dependent on it. Mm. But also, I, I'd use it to boost my mood. Yeah. Change my mood. You know, if you if you're in a low sort of space, you know, having that sort of everyday sort. Of I wouldn't say it was searing pain, but just this dull intermuscular kind of ache and pain for years and years and years. I found myself very comfortably sort of abusing codeine. Yeah, absolutely. And But God, it's a, it, it, it buggers up your body though, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's horrible. Opiates yeah. are horrible. It's, you know... It feels great at the time. Yeah. I mean, I was aware that it was something that, you know, I mean, it's really, it's heroin, isn't it? I mean... Yeah. The painkillers that they eventually... So they eventually put me on very strong painkillers when it become very unmanageable, and that was morphine and fentanyl. So fentanyl is 50 times stronger than street heroin. Jeez. I've never tried fentanyl. Don't. <laughs> yeah, but I, you, you hear you hear these horrendous stories in the US of it. Yeah. Know, just go rifing I mean, in certain communities. It's so and cheap, is the other thing. So it's so cheap, so they, hand, they handed them out like Smarties in the States. It's so cheap to make, so it's they're mixing it with the heroin, the street heroin, obviously, on the streets, and that is the thing that's causing people to overdose because it's so strong that they're not. Even the really hardcore heroin consumers that have been consuming for years and have got, like, a massive tolerance, a little bit of fentanyl in with their um, heroin just sends them over. And it's just created... I think there was there was a there was a stat that I think it was one year I think it was two thousand and sixteen or seventeen it's seventy thousand people in the in the US died from an opiate overdose and the majority of those started on prescription medicines seventy thousand people that's like 
a war's worth of death. I know. And that's per year. Hmm. And this is stuff that their doctors are giving out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's prescribed drugs. Yeah. That's prescribed drugs. I uh, I was told by someone the other day that um, with the fentanyl patches, mm. they're not particularly efficient. So what happens is there's, a, there's still actually a lot of fentanyl left in the patches after yeah. someone's used them. So you get people who go through bins outside hospitals and will collect the old used fentanyl patches. And then somehow they can extract the fentanyl out of them and to yeah. to start using it. And um, yeah, it's a crazy. It's, I think it's a crazy system that um, we sort of created these sort of these drugs, which are highly, highly addictive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think we're going to. I mean, obviously, you see the opi- opioid crisis in the US sort of really sort of boom over the last sort of decade. But I think that's something that we're going to really experience in the UK. I, mm. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a doctor, and um, he was like, the, the, the amount of ordinary people, you know, who are addicted to opiate-based medications now, you know, be it painkillers and all this sort of jazz, and they've been using them daily for years and years and years. And you, you wouldn't even know, you wouldn't even consider these people to be drug addicts. Oh, no, yeah. You know, normal people who are getting up every yeah. single day, going to work, you know, normal life from all intents and purposes. They're just like normal people. But they're addicted to these these painkillers or other types of medications. I remember talking to a friend of mine and um, his mother was very, very judgmental on his use of cannabis. Like, hugely judgmental. You know, successful lady, good career, you know, very straight-laced. And um, he said the crazy thing was, he said, uh, he said, my mum wakes up every single morning and pops opiate-based medication mm-hmm. just so she can get through her day. Mm-hmm. And she has the audacity to judge me for someone who uses cannabis just at night just yeah. to unwind. And he's like, you know, my mum doesn't even consider herself to have an issue because she's been given these drugs by the doctor. She's yeah. been on these drugs for 15-odd years. So she's like, well, the doctor gives them to me. Everything's fine. You're like, yeah, but these doctors are over-prescribing these drugs. And now you've got this whole, this huge range of people who are everyday drug addicts. Mm-hmm. And they don't even realize it. Because you, you, you cancel their prescription and you see how quickly their, their lives will just fall apart. Absolutely. You know, and that's terrifying that, you know, normal, whatever normal is, you know, normal everyday people, are, you know, are, are drug addicts and you know we're not even discussing it purely because we're just over prescribing these mm. these medications it's uh it's concerning it's really 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 worrying and not not only that but that you know they're they're incredibly addictive but they also affect who you are as a person they take i feel that just from my own experience and this I'm sure this isn't the experience for everybody but I've you know from those I've spoken to it can be quite similar is that I I feel like it took away from who I am like for those six years I feel like I don't really resonate with what I was doing what you know how I was my mood everything like it got to the I, I think I mean my other half, bless her, is incredible. And she's just been, she's held me up through this whole thing. But I don't know how long I would have let her do that much longer, mm. put her through that. Because it was just not a nice existence being on, on all those drugs. 
you know, having and and these and and for people with a neuropathic pain like you know that I had, and you know there are people with fibromyalgia, with MS, with you know people post-stroke. People, there's thousands of people with chronic pain, neuropathic pain for different reasons. And the standard treatment is not just opiates; it's opiates on top of barbiturates, which are central nervous system depressants, on top of benzodiazepines, on top of epilepsy drugs that stop your brain from functioning properly, to try and stop the the signals from misfiring in the first place. So the way I describe it is the way that a doctor described it to me was uh, with neuropathic pain is if I hit you with a hammer, you'd only feel it because your brain sent that signal and then the signal was sent back to the brain. That's pain. Whereas with neuropathic pain or, or, you know, in the case of fibromyalgia and other illnesses, those signals are being misfired all the time. Um, And they're, you know, the pharmaceutical way of treating that is to come up with a synthetic compound which depresses the central nervous system, pushes it down. But your central nervous system is responsible for, for a lot more than just misfiring off pain. It's responsible for the way we, you know, the way we are in the world. It's responsible for, for the way things feel, for the way things are, you know, for the way you handle life, for, you know, smell, sounds, everything processes through the brain and if your brain is being sort of turned into a a vegetable state then it's very hard to get any enjoyment out of life from that vantage point from from being down there it's like being on the ground it's like you're way down there um and yeah it's my heart now it's i'm just like i can't stand by and let this be the way that people are dealt with these vulnerable people that are just something's something's gone on and for whatever reason it's left them with pain whether it's related to experience or you know something physical has happened how can we how can we do that to people we're chemically castrating these people and a lot of the time, we're doing that without much in the way of positive outcome. My pain wasn't controlled. I was still screaming the house down. I was still absolutely screaming to the point where my neighbour next door, who was attached at the time, could hear me screaming at night in agony. It, despite the fact that I was on all of these drugs, it's just not It's not a solution. We've, we've got better solutions. Yeah, I think that's a, you bring a really valid point up that I think, um, I mean, I've I've seen this with my experience in, you know, working in the, the sort of the, the field of medicine for you know, twenty plus years. Where I remember I worked in a uh, a sort of private rehabilitation centre mm. um, for about seven or eight years in my sort of early twenties, and um, we had a we had a range of range of sort of clients. You know, with with lots of different issues, be it you know st- stroke rehabilitation to you know conditions like Huntington's disease to you know um, physical issues that come on through drug addiction, you yeah. know, heart attacks, strokes, or again all of that sort of stuff. And I remember, and I've I've mentioned this story I think once before on the sort of podcast where I was working with this lady. She's died now, so I can talk about her. This lovely lady called Maggie, and she suffered from Huntington's disease, which is this horrendous, very cruel condition that basically just robs you of everything over a 15-year period and will always lead to death. 
and we'd we would be giving her probably about 35 different tablets every single day over you know four or five different medication sessions to try and combat a, a whole plethora of, of 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 physical and mental issues and I remember her husband came in one day and uh, he's like look you know before Maggie you know became really really sick she would use cannabis to help alleviate the symptoms this I found very interesting because at the time we were doing we were part of a, a clinical drug trial um, with the QE in um, in Birmingham at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham and we were we were working with a drug called Nabulone. Mm. Nabulone was a synthetic THC drug. And I remember the tablets were costing at the time, I think about £120 each. Wow. <laughs> so like ridiculous. And we'd be you know, the, some of the some of the clients would be on, you know, four or five of these tablets a day. And you wouldn't see much difference. And so when, when her husband came in with, you know, with a, literally a box of pre-rolled joints, he was like, look, you know, he said, I really want you to, to try Maggie on these. Obviously, it's not legal to do, um, but being a private rehabilitation centre, we were, you know, we were off the radar quite a lot back then. So yeah. we were able to do it. It was all, it was all done under the, 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 you know, the guidance of, doctors and consultants and stuff so it was all it was all sort of officially agreed and I remember I was I was in charge of of uh, helping her use this sort of cannabis cigarette because the, the, the owner of the rehabilitation center knew that I, I, was, a, I, was, a, I was a fan of cannabis <laughs> shall we say and I remember taking Maggie over to the the coach house which was had this multi-sensory room sort of chill out space and explaining to her what we were going to do and this the, Maggie had never never been able to talk. She was sort of constricted and tight, belted into this chair, so she couldn't throw herself out of it. You know, with no real control over her body. Mm. And uh, I lit this king size cannabis joint up and uh, gave it to her. And she literally she snatched it from my hand with her with, <laughs> her, with, her, with her fingers and stuffed it into her mouth so fast. And I was actually a little bit concerned at the time because she literally just went. <laughs> just inhaled and you can watch this, this joint just burn down and she just consumed like half of it in one go and within about 90 seconds you saw her arms drop where they were always tight up mm. against her body her legs dropped down and she opened her eyes she looked at me and she just said thank you wow and for about six or seven hours she was in this completely different space she was quite rude and a bit inappropriate at times but that was just who she was and um, sounds like me yeah and I, but I was just I, at that point I'd gone from you know being a, a recreational cannabis consumer to going oh my god yeah I, I have never seen 35 tablets of powerful drugs we don't see anything like this and just literally a ca one cannabis joint has given this lady yeah, six or seven hours of, of relief. And then you could just see her slowly sort of taut up back into this sort of tight space again. Oh, and I was just like, from that point on, I was just like, oh, wow, this, you know, cannabis is really, really interesting. And um, that was the starting point for me to sort of really start to explore um, my sort of interest into the plant medicines and, you know, the fact that actually, oh, well, maybe the pharmaceutical industry haven't got it right and maybe we should be looking at the more holistic approaches and actually medicines that we have been using as humans for thousands of years. 
Wow. Thanks, Maggie, wherever you are. Yeah, bless her. Bless her. You know, it was a, it was a real aha moment in mm. my life. Where I was just like, wow. And I remember going home and telling my younger brother. I remember telling my parents. I was just like, look, this is this was incredible. You know, at that point, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd smoke cannabis with my mates on the weekend. You know, we were having a drink and just relaxing. I, I'd never had never even crossed my mind that it could potentially be a medicinal mm. a medicinal plant. It was literally, oh, it's just something that just gets you high and, you know, that's fun and you laugh and you eat more pizza than normal. And that was that was really the starting point for, for my real interest into looking at cannabis as a, as a, as a medicine. And, uh, and then over the, uh, the last 20 years, I've come into contact with, yeah, thousands and thousands of people who've, who've yeah. used it for, I think, I think probably for pretty much every sort of condition. And then I was, you know, I realized I was ultimately a, a medical cannabis user mm. to a degree because I was self-medicating, trying to sort of cope with anxiety, depression, other mental health issues that I, I suffer from. Um, and it still, it still amazes me now, you know, at nearly 40 years old, you know, we're still sort of trying to push you know, for people to have safe access. And uh, I did a yeah. video the other day talking about medical cannabis and it's just like, look, you know, this is a joke. You know, the government obviously legalized it November 1st last year. Of course, you're well aware of that. But in that time, I think only about 80 children have been able to be prescribed medical cannabis mm. in that time. Um, I'm not sure on the adult figures, but I don't, I don't suspect it's much more than that. Yeah, um, so. And then the cost... You know, yeah. the cost implications to, to, to medical cannabis, because obviously it's not available on the NHS at all, is it? I don't think. Well, I did get an NHS prescription. Mm. Um, so following on from my private prescription, which cost 1,400 quid for a month's supply. So that was for uh, 50 grams, 25 grams of Bedrocan, 25 grams of Bedica. Um, so it's 750 quid an ounce. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> And the breakdown seven, of that is, it was about about 400 to 500 quid of that was the actual medicine cost. Right. The import company charged me a grand on top to deliver it. What? Yeah. So that is the issue. The issue at the moment, the biggest issue, um, for in terms of the cost, isn't actually that Bedrocan are charging a fortune, you know, it's... It's actually similar in cost to what we're paying on the criminal market now in terms of per gram. So ultimately what we're saying is that Bedrican who supply it are look they're, they're charging around 200 an ounce. There, yeah, I mean it's about it's about it works out from euros to pounds about between 8 and 9 euros a gram which is similar to at the 10 pounds a gram that we're all used to paying on the criminal market, right? Yeah. Um yeah, and so so what so the way the system is set up at the moment is that it, it needs to be put through the process for a special medicine because it's an import, and those special medicines require certain licenses, insurances, because it's a controlled drug. You need even more of those insurances and you know um, things in place to to carry it. So they need special lockable vans. They need lock boxes. They need guards. They need it's full on. You would think that they were carrying the queen in that van. Um, it's it's just bizarre. It's so bizarre because it's a Schedule Two controlled drug. They need an incredible amount of these extra things to be able to to bring it in. So not only is a van got to go and get it from Holland, which you know that's great for the planet. 
every time somebody wants <laughs> every time somebody has a prescription because uh, it's brought in on a name patient basis um that yeah so on top of all that so that's how they're justifying the cost they're saying you know we've got to i'm pretty sure it's not a grand's worth of cost so so we're, we're, they, yeah so we can basically s- summarize it that Bedrocan are selling it for eight to nine euros yeah. or, or pounds a gram. Yeah. So that, that's not too bad in the grand scale of things. Okay, we can get our heads around that. But because it's done on a patient-by-patient basis, mm-hmm. a van is going to drive to Holland, pick it up and drive it back, and then they charge you around £1,000 for that whole process. Yeah. That is just absolute madness, isn't it? I mean, it is mad. It's just madness. I believe that some, if you have a roll-in prescription, if you have, I mean, it has to be a month-on-month prescription that goes on this form called an FP10. Anyway, but I believe that if you, you know, so IPS or Miller & Miller or one of the import companies can hold, a, I think it's three months of prescription per patient. So they've brought the cost down slightly, but still, not not by much, still, you know, it's still ridiculous amount of money. Mm. Um and you know my prescription was like on average it was double it was double the amount it was double the average mortgage in the UK for for somebody who's a patient that you know is trying to access a medicine and potentially doesn't have an income can't work yeah. all of this sort yeah. of stuff absolutely absolutely it's just lunacy I, 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 I struggle so much to get my head around how anybody I mean Somebody's got to make that decision. Someone, someone somewhere mm. has gone, right, well, this is going to require all these licenses. Okay, that's fine. But what? who's going to pay for that? Oh, well, the patient will pay for it. Yeah, but the patients, a lot of the time, they can't work. They don't have an income. So we're now expecting people who what live off benefits. So, I mean, that's not going to be much. Yeah. You know, to then find £1,400 or so a month for the medicine. Mm. Well, because it's, it's an unlicensed medicine. So what they're saying is, you know, it's unlicensed, therefore... We don't have stock. We, are, you know, we aren't ap- officially approving of it. There hasn't been randomised controlled trials. But of course, there, there hasn't been randomised controlled trials anywhere in the world with cannabis because it doesn't fit into the into the RCT model. Mm. So randomised controlled trials take three years per condition. Now cannabis treats up over three hundred conditions, so that's nine hundred years of research hours before you can write a prescription. I'm like, oh, are you kidding? Has anybody thought this through? No. No. That, I think that is becoming quite clear. Uh, yeah, so we need to be looking at... And, and the other thing is, you know, the reason the other countries haven't done it is because we can't shove cannabis, which actually is a library of medicines. It's a whole, it's a whole complete encyclopedia of medicines, cannabis. It's, we can't shove all of those into one little tiny box that's made for one new medicine. Mm. We can't do RCTs. How, how are we going to, you know, what if you give somebody a granddaddy purple, but they actually need a, you know, you know, you can't, we're not going to be able to do that. It's just not going to fit into that model. So my argument is that we need to be looking at other types of trials. Observational, I think, would be perfect. Because if we can, um, and that's why I suppose the, the Grow Your Own initiative, which I'll talk a bit about, um, would be a good one here because at the moment we can't do observational trials because people are sourcing. We're not sure what people are sourcing. So, uh, you know, as I don't know if if nobody knows how this works, you, you know, your dealer 
your supplier at the moment will get in touch with a menu and you'll choose off the menu and they'll quite often they'll come and drop it off which is brilliant great service and i'm very thankful for the people that that do that because you know they're putting themselves at risk for our medicine but um yeah so uh so say i got a blue dream i thought it was blue dream it was great for my symptoms fantastic this strain is the one we don't actually know if that is blue dream genetically what that is it could be something completely different we're not sure um so we can't really run observational style trials based on that information because we don't know the genetics of them. Mm. But if we ha- if we allowed patients who otherwise would qualify for a private prescription to grow a couple of plants at home, we would know where they got their seeds. They could tell us via a self-reporting app or tool where they got those seeds from, what the, what the strain was, and they could then enter themselves into a self-reporting observational style trial where they're saying, okay, so six o'clock, nerve pain, is that a number nine? Vaped this strain brought it down to a two, done. And then that data's collected. Um, that could be really valuable, so mm. valuable. Like we've got I, this, we've got the ability to do that right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's what's worked so well in places like California, who've obviously had a sort of a relaxed kind of medical approach to cannabis for, you know, over ten years. So I think it's slightly longer than that now, mm. um, because. You know, there are potentially hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of different types of strains. We're obviously aware now that the terpene profiles of these strains obviously play a huge part in the overall effects. Yeah, massively. And I think that's, I think the beauty of being able to walk into a dispensary in sort of California where there's potentially, I don't know, let's just say 50 different strains, you know, and those, the, the, the people who work in there are talking to patients all day long. So they're able to go, oh, well, actually, you know, you, you suffer from this ne- type of neuropathic pain. Mm. Okay, well, we've had, you know, 100 clients who all have similar sort of symptoms and issues. And they really find this, the, you know, the, these five strains seem to be very popular with those types of people. And then you're able to go, okay, well, I can, I'll just purchase a couple of grams of each and, yeah. I'll, and I'll trial it. And, you know, then you sort of, you can find your perfect strain, be it a blue dream. But I think, you know, you, you highlight a really good point where, you know, in the UK, we don't know what we're buying. You know, the, the, the people growing it or selling it could just make up any name they want. Mm. Um, and that's that, and that obviously creates a, a whole range of, you know, new issues. Because, you, you, you know, you, but you might find something which works one week, you know, from a dealer. Yeah, yeah, you know, It works really, really well. But you're like, oh, God, am I ever going to get that back again? Because even say... I mean, Blue Dream, you know, an amazing strain. It's one of my favourites. But, you know, I've had Blue Dream all over the world and arguably it's been pretty much different in, in every single mm. situation because even if you grow 100 Blue Dream plants... Yeah, they're all going to be slightly... Yeah. They're, they're all going to be, you know, yeah. the, the, the various differences in those plants could potentially be actually quite quite large. The, mm. spe- the spectrum on that would be quite fast. And I think this I think this almost sort of highlights the, the issues that... Um, the, gut, the British government have, you know, because I spend quite a lot of time talking to them about it. And, and obviously, I think because we've hammered down, so like we want medical cannabis, and especially with the British mindset of, you know, we're a, we're a big sort of uh, pharmaceutical comp- uh, country. You know, we produce yeah. a lot of pharmaceutical drugs. We have very high pharmaceutical drug standards, um, some of the highest in the world. And, you know, and that's a good thing, you know, because our, our medications are very clean and they, they are very effective at what they 
do for the type of people they're designed for. But I almost feel we've, in a way, we've shot ourselves in the foot by demanding medical cannabis mm, because yeah. now they're like, okay, well, we'll do, we'll legalize medical cannabis, but you know, a plant isn't a medicine, as far as we're concerned. A medicine is something in a tablet, a white powder, a form of mm. something like that. But then, obviously, you know, f- from the pharmaceutical companies, you can't patent a plant. Yeah. So they're like, well, are we going to chuck a couple hundred million quid into developing something which we can't patent? No, they won't because that scares the living day out of them because they want to patent something. So like GW Pharmaceuticals is a great example where they've now created this sort of tincture, yeah. be it Satifex or Epidolex, you know, which they can then sort of protect and patent. And I think, you know, they've spent hundreds of millions of yeah, pounds millions on, and millions. On, on, on sorting those out. And you can get, you can understand that from a, a business point of view. Um but I think, I think people have got to be allowed to use the raw forms of cannabis, yeah. the plants, because that's what we have used for thousands of years. You know, it's, it's not a new medicine we have been using for thousands of years, and there is a rich history tracing that back to ancient China, you know, thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I'm not sure how we can get our MPs, our politicians you know our policymakers' heads around that notion of we're going to allow a medicine and it is going to look like a plant mm. and like cannabis on the street and i don't know how to reframe that it's difficult it's going to be difficult it's visual language isn't it they you know you look at a pill you look at a plant you look at cannabis that's been demonized over you know so many years and misunderstood a lot of the time and I'm not saying there isn't problematic use because of course there is it's problematic use of sugar and caffeine as well but um, it looks like we you know that visual language of that picture of a bud says drugs to people mm. but also it's 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 it, 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 I think it's deeper than that also from a from a medical point of view is that you know as uh, in the medical industry we want to have standardized drugs mm-hmm. we want to be able to go right Carly, here is your blue dream, and that's going to be the same blue dream that you get week on week, month on month, year on year. It's never going to deviate. It's going to be exactly the same. And you know, an ibuprofen is an ibuprofen. It doesn't matter which brand you buy. Mm-hmm. The, the the chemical breakdown of that drug is is identical across the board. So it's that standardised medicine approach where I can yeah. buy ibuprofen here in London. I could go to Greece. I could go to America, and yeah, they they'll have. They'll, different names different brands but the 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 chemical breakdown of it is exactly the same so i can i I can predict that two ibuprofens is going to sort out my back pain and i think that's where the issues lie with cannabis is because it's such a it's such a broad spectrum plant of which i'd argue a a lot is still very misunderstood Mm -hmm. and i think it terrifies them the fact that they at the moment i don't think they feel they can standardize this product and I think that's almost a point where we need to get to in in the evolution of cannabis as a medicine is to and I don't know how to do this but to somehow standardize the product and I think I think we will ultimately see different types of formulations of cannabis come onto the market mm. you know be it a be it a tablet be it a, a some sort of consumable that they've somehow been able to standardize to a degree because I don't think any pharmaceutical company would be happy to produce a product where they're like each batch is potentially going to be different mm. because ultimately that's that's going to affect the client yeah. or the patient long term, right? You know, 
you find something which works and you're like, yeah, my God, this really, really works. The next month it's a different batch. You're like, oh, actually this is, this is completely different. Now, now you're back at square one. So this research and, and trying to create standardized products, I would argue is going to be hugely beneficial for patients and people mm. who use cannabis. But I'm still unsure on how the hell yeah. they're going to get there. I'm sort of hoping that we're going to, in terms of supply, and this is something that has come out of um, actually some, um, what's the word? People were worried about my scheme in the in Carly's Amnesty scheme, which is a grow-your-own scheme, by the way, um, because they felt that encouraging lots of people to grow indoors it could be standardized on a small small scale if you're cloning uh, but the environmental impact of that is actually pretty huge and that's another thing that when we're looking about standardizing medicine and particularly standardizing medicine for our patients here is i think that's another challenge because um some of the stats about the emissions that is created by indoor grows is scary Mm. it is massively scary and um you know i think i think the stat is two so two bags of sugar worth of cannabis um to to grow that indoors properly as in a standardized way um would release the same emissions carbon emissions um as driving around the whole of the united states seven times in a truck wow so that's just bonkers isn't it yeah I think I read a. I think I saw an article or article fell on my desk talking about that. Actually, about the you know the, obviously the huge environmental implications. Yeah. You know, especially like places like Canada where you have. You oh know, yeah, because you're growing in a coal country. Aircraft hangars. Yeah. You know, I mean, sh- huge, huge grow facilities with thousands of lights and yeah, you know, and huge that will be bills. that will be a massive percentage of their overall energy consumption for the country that's going that's going on this mm. in the big Canadian companies country uh, yeah companies because it's a cold it's a cold climate isn't it and they're trying to grow a tropical plant it's like it's like all of us all of a sudden deciding that we're not going to get our tea from China and instead we're going to put it under lights and grow it indoors it's, it, yeah, watch it, the price yeah tenfold. it's just completely mad yeah so I think I think we're I think there's gonna in terms of standardization, what I'm hoping that we're seeing is that regions on the equator take some of that mm. on and are developing sun grown cannabis with that is appropriately cloned and standardized. Because Because I guess if it you know, I mean I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday, we were talking about um, you know, the continent of Africa. Mm becoming a potential hotspot for yeah. doing well, exactly absolutely. that. Yeah. You've got you've got obviously great all year round climate. Um, you know, it'd be amazing for local communities, you know, for you know, to help sort of prop up local communities and you know, you could you could create really interesting sort of grow projects where you're not just growing cannabis, you're growing food and stuff to feed yeah, the local communities absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Because I guess, you know, if it's been grown outdoors and then it's been processed, but then Yeah you know processed and cleaned and then formulated into something is it's it's better but I, you know i think it's a valid point and i think it's a, it's a sensible conversation to have because you know as 
cannabis does become much more mainstream, which of course it's going to. Mm. You know, the fuse is being lit now, and you know, global legalization is is obviously on the horizon. It's on the cards for sure. Even even England's going to buckle at some point. You know, we yeah, absolutely, know, we, we will buckle, and that's a you know that's a it's a very valid point. You know, as we're going to have to be growing mm. millions of tons of cannabis for global yeah. consumption, then we're going to have to look at completely new ways of growing it. But and then I think you know this is this is where humanity's at now, isn't it? Where we're going to have to we're going to have to have a rethink of our our culture, our tradition, our ways of thinking, the ways you know we've always done things. You know, this is I, I find this sort of mentality really sort of restrictive. You know, a lot of times with people where they're just like, oh, well, this is our tradition. This is our culture. This is how we, this is how we've always done it. Yeah. And it irritates the hell out of me when people say that to me. Oh, this is how we've always done it. I'm like, that's fine. And I respect that. I I get that. You know, I get culture and tradition, but you know, the world is a very different place now, you know, from even a hundred years ago. It's a very different world to the one my grandparents were born into. And we're going to have to... We're going to have to change our ways of thinking. We're going to have to become more flexible in our thinking. And I think with something like plant medicine and cannabis, I think I really do support that people really should have the right to grow their own at home yeah, for themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. Not 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 to grow it to sell it to profit from it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't I don't think that should necessarily be encouraged. Um, but I think people who who use cannabis medicinally should absolutely have the right to grow a number of plants legally yeah. and without the fear of you know, criminal prosecutions, you mm. know, like sensible countries like Switzerland, say. I mean, yeah. you know, the Swiss have kind of got it right. They've got I mean, it right in most they're, they're, cases, haven't they? They're a bright, intelligent, forward-thinking mm. European country. And, uh, you know, in Switzerland, you're perfectly within your right to grow four plants per person, per household. And, yeah, you know, actually, how many medical patients really need more than that? No. I mean, on rotation, I mean... I mean that would I mean that would be perfect. Um in and, and you know I've had to go back to the uh illicit market and it's been hit and miss. You know after being able to not able to afford to sustain the private prescription going back has been hit and miss. So you know the I always say there's two types of dealers that patients deal with or anybody deals with really. There's the the people that don't care that are involved in all kinds of shenanigans organized crime they couldn't give a, a toss if your cannabis is flush properly or you know what it's been grown in it's you know the bigger the buds the better the higher the yield get it out yep. couldn't care less um and then there's the you know and then there's our amazing people in this industry who are our pro growers who are incredibly knowledgeable and take amazing care you know in in what it is that they're doing and what it is that they're growing and they want to produce a good product at the end of it and um and the situation as it stands right now is that patients are that that's 50 50 really patients all over the country are are in a bit of a postcode lottery as to who you're going to end up with Mm -hmm. and you know personally i've um at times when my trusted suppliers have not had what I needed, I've had to go to less trusted suppliers. And I've had mould, I've had things that weren't flushed properly, I've had horrible stuff. And I, I've got to be a bit careful because my body isn't isn't like as normal as everybody else's. I'm not I'm not particular. I'm, I'm as healthy as I can be because of cannabis, thankfully. 
but I do need to be careful about what I'm putting in my body chemically. And it's kind of quite, it's, it can be quite scary to, to think about the fact that you are, you know, you're, you're put in this position whereby your medicine could be poisoning you. You're not entirely sure, but you're sort of hoping it's not. So you're just sat there vaping and just hoping that everything's going to be okay. Whereas realistically, if, you know, if I was allowed to grow a couple of plants of the strains that I know worked, I would be so much more well. I wouldn't have these up and downs in my, in the way that my health is. And I know, you know, hundreds of people would be in the same position. They'd be much more well if they could have consistency. And, and a lot of these patients really, and I think that medicine is, is quite, I listened to a podcast actually that quite recently that said that medicine at the minute is quite a paternal thing. And they don't, they often assume that patients don't know what they're talking about or don't want to be part of the solution. It's just throwing drugs at people. But also not taking on what it is that they're saying. They're not listening to, I know what works for me. It's this. Mm. And actually, these people are often adults. Like, we need to start, don't we start communicating and collaborating between the medical profession and the patient who has discovered something quite often. And they know what works for them. I mean, yeah. So it's, you know, it's completely ridiculous that they're not being listened to or allowed to to consume the thing that the one thing that is helped beyond all else really yeah i i, I listen i i completely agree because i've always had this argument that um you know our modern our modern medicine system belief system structure is is under 200 years old and um you know it's 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 this crazy. We live in this crazy sort of system where the doctors are like, uh, you know, doctors very often haven't got a clue what's really wrong with you. Yeah. And they just they look in their book and they'll just go, oh well, you got this symptom, so we'll prescribe you this drug. <clears throat> um, but exactly that, you know, we're all we're all completely different. We're all everything is subjective and personal to to us. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why I think we see modern medicine, in my eyes, fail a lot of the times that really sort of been able to help conditions because you know you've done clinical trials on 300 people and 78 percent of those 300 people have sort of said they've had positive sort of uh, effects from said drug but then the medical industry is like okay well those 300 people are, are an accurate representation of seven and a half billion people on this planet yeah and that in itself is 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 a completely flawed methodology of thinking and um nobody knows our own bodies and minds like ourselves because no one else lives in our own body and mind so i find it actually really insulting when doctors are like no cannabis doesn't work you're like well well, dude i'm 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 the one living this experience and you know i find it really helps me so i I find the arrogance Mm of the medical industry where they're just like well you know I went to med school for seven years and you know I, I know what I'm talking about and you're like yeah but you don't mm. a- actually you don't and especially when it comes to cannabis did you study that in medical school no no you, you didn't actually study anything about cannabis and if you were told anything about cannabis it would have been a negative thing about cannabis so I think there's again this I think this comes down to culture and tradition of you know we go to a doctor we go to a third person to help fix ourselves Mm. when ultimately i think you know the only person who really can fix us is ourselves because maybe nine times out of ten it's it's something in our world has potentially got us got us into that sort of situation of disease or you know illness and i know that's a 
I know that's a tricky a tricky sort of subject for a lot of people to get their head around but you know I would say that you know for the last couple of hundred years you know we have been going to a third person we've been going to doctors and consultants to fix us and ultimately like I sort of said earlier before we started to record you know in the 21st century Britain you know one in two of us will get diagnosed with cancer in our lifetime you know yet we live in the most medically advanced stage of <laughs> humanitarian human, human history and um you know we're suffering from more physical issues more mental health issues than ever before and realistically they don't have the cure they they, they don't know they they second guess they look at their books and they look, they look at their charts which again are our old old charts and go well this worked for 300 people so we'll just say it works for everybody and it and it, and it doesn't and um i find it i find it incredibly frustrating that our doctors are so rigid in in the way they think mm. And, um, you know, I think if anything has taught us throughout history is that being rigid and believing one way is the right way is a, is a very foolish way to... Yeah, absolutely. ...to think full stop. I think we need to be looking at... We don't have an integrated medicine. Like, I, I think Canada and some other countries do have integrated medicine, so they sort of combine things like nutrition and, you know, diet, exercise, all of the other, you know emotional stuff energetic stuff they sort of combine to treat things as a whole which to me i'm like of course like that makes sense like of course you consider everything about that person's life and not just treat the one symptom or or give them something to mask it fancy that yeah again that's just it's just it's such a flawed method of thinking well we'll, yeah treat a symptom yeah well i mean i could I, i could have a bad back so i mean this is a classic thing you know you've got a bad back Oh, well, we'll give you painkillers for your bad back. Yeah, but ultimately, my... It's my, still my, bad. Yeah, my hip, my hip is out of place, which <laughs> yeah. is great to the bad back. My hip is out of place because I'm not walking properly because there's an issue with my ankle. Mm. So ultimately, if you fix the ankle issue, the ankle will then transfer to fix into the hip, and then fix the hip, the, fi- the, the hip fixes the back. Yeah. But no, 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 no. They'll just go, oh, well, you've got back pain, so yeah, we'll just take these pills. Yeah. So you're like, okay, well... You're literally just switching off the pain receptors, so I can't feel the pain, but the pain and the trauma is still there, and it's only going to get worse over time. And that, and that, and that's ultimately how they think now. Mm. You know, it's the same with like cancer. You know, well, you got cancer. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do: we'll, we'll cut it out, we'll burn it, or we'll poison it. Yeah. Uh, okay, great. And we've been doing that now for over a hundred years, and now one in two people in the UK will get diagnosed with mm-hmm. cancer. So whatever we're doing is not working. So we're, we're cutting the cancers out. We're burning. We're poisoning them. It's a definition of insanity, isn't it? Well, I think that's what Einstein said, right? Yeah. You know, one of the most <laughs> intelligent men ever who's walked this planet so said, you know, the definition of madness is to continually repeat exactly the same thing and expect different results. Yeah. And yet that's exactly what our, our, our medical profession seems to be doing. And it's just, yeah. it's just, it just, it just drives me, it drives me to despair. <laughs> Yeah, it's complete madness that you can't zoom out and think about that person and also their their other needs and also the potential harms of the cures. And I'm using, inver- I'm using what what do you call this? Air, air commas. Air commas, yeah. I'm using, We're being uh, sarcastic. Uh, yeah. Um, what harm that could do. Because I think, I think in my case and in, in many people's case who have been sort of pharmaceutically... I don't really know what word to use there. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, on really heavy pharmaceutical drugs is that, you know, 
my needs weren't just about the pain. It was, I, I want to be able also to be able to live my life. So by just addressing my pain, you've, you've given me something that is n- not allowing me to live my life. You know, so you're sort of making the situation worse with the cure that you're offering. So it's a very bizarre way of looking at things. But with, you know, with cannabis for me, my pain is, is different. It's addressed in a different way. We're not, we're not rip, we're not depressing anything in the central nervous system. You know, we're going to the sites where it's needed and we're readdressing the balance. And, um, and it's a very different way of medicating, of self-medicating. You know, you're not, um, you're not hitting me with a hammer in order to solve the problem. It's you know it's it's a much more gentle way, and it and it allows me to live my life and many others. And just this morning, actually, just before my missus left the house, she said, "I'm so grateful for this plant, and I'm so grateful." For, and she said, "I can't work out which one's better, cannabis or or psilocybin." She said, "But both of them in combination have given me you back, so I'm grateful for that." And I was like, "Wow, like how great is that?" Well, that's amazing. I mean, you know, that your partner is able to to recognise that, you know, on on a chemical cocktail yeah. of drugs, you sort of, you lose yourself. Yeah, totally. You, know, you, you lose that essence. Um, yeah. And we see, we see that a lot. I mean, you know, my background is more mental health um, over physical health. But you, you see that exactly the same in people. You know, I've got, you know, I, I know lots of people who are, you know they're on that sort of antidepressant kind of yeah. route and um you know i've got one friend of mine who's been on antidepressants for gosh 15 years and every single time they go to the doctor you know the doctor's like oh yeah great these are working and uh, yeah we're gonna we're gonna up the dosage just a little bit just to keep you there and you're like 15 15 years wow and this person's in their early 30s you're like so since since you're a teenager you've been on these, these these drugs and essentially what they're trying to do is to to cover up and to deal with trauma from the past yeah but they're never going to be able to deal with the trauma from the past because you know they're, they're just filling themselves with these 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 antidepressants which ultimately just dull you and switch you off and they'll very commonly admit and and be very open about the fact is that you know i feel switched off I don't yeah. feel alive. I feel detached from this world. And actually just the idea of coming off them terrifies them. Mm-hmm. You know, throw them into this horrendous state of depression. Just just the idea, just the notion of coming off this crutch, this tablet, which they're now, 15 years later, completely reliant on. And um, I find that terrifying, especially with like mental health issues like depression, say, you know, there's there's 360 million people who suffer with treatment-resistant depression. Mm. So that is a, 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 such a severe state of depression that they've tried everything. You know, they've thrown all of their fancy pharmaceutical drugs at you, and those drugs have achieved nothing. And these people are still battling for their lives, I would argue. And then you hear about this incredible research you know, into psilocybin, magic mushrooms to the common person, that one or two doses, just one or two doses of low low dose of psilocybin, I think is around 25 milligrams, can have prolonged mm. effects on this clinical deep depressive state. 
And that fascinates the hell out of me. You, you know, you've got people who who are completely lost into this very cruel, depressive state that they find themselves in. They've tried everything that the pharmaceutical industry and the doctors can throw at them. And yet just one or two doses of small amounts of psilocybin can relieve their symptoms for, for months, if not years, if not permanently. Mm. Yeah. And you're like, hold on here. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking about a condition that we can't, in the traditional sense of using modern medicine and drugs, cure. We can't help these people because this is such a deep psychological disturbance inside them. And yet this little fungi that will grow anywhere and everywhere one or two doses in, in, in the right controlled environment in a therapeutic setting can unlock these people from this mm. horrendously cruel disease. And they are talking about researching it more. I mean, it's all private companies which are, are doing it. And it's exciting to sort of see U.S. states, you know, obviously like the city of Denver in Colorado, sort of yes. now decriminalize the use of, Go on, you know, Denver. The psilocybin mushrooms i mean and that is hugely exciting and now i think oakland in california are potentially looking to do the same brilliant so this is this is hugely exciting because i i think that plant medicines like say psilocybin are just phenomenal and you know it's it's something that i've used um, a lot over the last sort of two years and it has fundamentally unlocked so much potential inside me hmm. And that, the beautiful thing is that you're talking about microdosing. Yeah, it's like you don't even notice it. Yeah. Like when I microdose, I mean, it's, it's, it depends what dose I'm taking and also if I've been consistent with it. So I, I can tolerate a 200 milligram dose now without much of a... You just don't, you just carry on with your day. And, it, you know, it's you're just taking a little bit of a plant every four days and everything's much better. Like my reduction in my nerve pain, fantastic, and much calmer much able to I'm more able to articulate myself I saw a video actually of myself I posted it online of me looking really thin in the garden this time last year and I was coming off opiates there's a video rec recorded of me taking off my fentanyl patch and saying like ta-ra but I looked at myself and I just thought wow that is bonkers but also what threw me was how nervous I was talking to the camera like I was, it was just Jem. It was just my wife recording me on a phone in our own garden. And I was like, uh, uh. it's like this scrawny little sort of like still on opiates, like not able to communicate effectively. And now it's a completely different, a year down the line, I don't really recognize that in myself at all. I feel like I've gone back to the Carly I used to be before the trauma, before any of this happened. Hmm which is just amazing. It's incredible. It's such an incredible... I wish people... I wish it was more readily available for people because this is a tool that is not, you know, it's not used enough. No, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, I, I, did a, I did a pretty strict microdosing regime before I, before I dived deep into the sort of whole plant medicines for me. And um, for me, it was anxiety and depression mm. and, you know, sort of confidence issues and... Obviously, this 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 barrage of noise that I used to live with in my head, and I remember the first time that I I, I took I, I did my first session of microdosing, and um, I remember that the first day I sort of got to about eight o'clock in the evening, and I was sort of sort of 
I was back at home and I was like, oh gosh, today's just been a good day. It's just been, mm. yeah, it's been easy. My mind has been more relaxed. I've been more comfortable with my surroundings. Oh, I haven't drunk as much. You know, I was very dependent on drinking alcohol to try and dull the noise down and suppress the emotional states that I was experiencing. And um, yeah, that just that just filled me with with joy just to think that I could take a, a tiny little capsule of powdered mushroom. Yeah, like you sort of say, every three to four days. And, um, you know, it made a fundamental difference to my life, mm. you know, like a real difference. And I, towards the end of it, I, I'd, I'd, I'd forget to even take the doses on the mm. days that I was meant to because I was still feeling just, I was like, yeah, I still feel good. Yeah. Still feel fantastic. And that's what really led me down the sort of path to then explore the sort of the deeper, deeper plant medicines to sort of try and create everlasting reprogramming changes into your system because you you recognize that you know these plants they're just they're just absolutely fantastic and we just don't we don't talk about them in society where there's this whole sort of notion of fear behind using these sort of plants and it's uh it's crazy and you know since since i've been more open about my use of sort of psychedelics and you know microdosing and other plant medicines i have had literally thousands of people contact me who have then gone off to start their own microdosing regimes and always with hugely positive results yeah absolutely yeah like life changes they're just yeah. like, oh my god i can't believe i take this thing i, I feel no different during the day but everything is different mm. yeah that's incredible right yeah i mean that, that that's something that works and you know yep these same sort of people would be going down to their doctors every single six weeks to go and get more antipsychotic meds or antidepressants or whatever just to sort of try and round the edges off in their life just so they could try and function and experience this beautiful world that we find ourselves in in a slightly more friendly and friendly manner and um yeah i i think alongside cannabis i i really want to see the conversation surrounding psychedelic therapy yeah it's just that we've just got this massive block haven't we about anything psychoactive interestingly unless the doctor prescribes it, it's not like you walk into a hospital and go oh you had to, are you off your face have you got off your face on those you don't do you but you know the minute anyone says oh i have smoked cannabis oh you're high you know we've got these labels they're very different these labels that we've but that's the crazy attached. thing isn't it it's just like okay you know smoke weed you get high mm. pop a couple of codeines you're off your face completely battered you know you are completely off your face but then they're like oh you feel safe to drive you can do so that's it on, on fentanyl and morphine i was like what's the what's the legal and they, the doctor was like oh if you feel all right you can just drive i was like on heroin he was like oh yeah okay yeah it's just yeah these human constructs aren't they just these are these ideas these made stories up, we tell but we, yeah they're, they're very it's amazing how black and white people see those those things and the fear is the fear is huge mm. fear is massive still but that's the, I, yeah i and i and i blame the media i blame the government for perpetuating this this, this rhetoric of, of of fear 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 mm. um when ultimately it's not about fear i'd say it's, it's about education it's about having sensible adult conversations about okay what works oh this seems to work you know people this 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 really does seem to work. We and we can see trials. We can see evidence of, you know, people with treatment resistant depression, for example, who really do struggle with life. Oh gosh, one or two sessions, 
just one or two sessions. I mean, just the sheer cost saving should be enough. You know, you can either mm. put someone on a prescription of antidepressants, you know, for multiple months, you know, like my friend, you know, who's been on 15 years. What does that cost? Yeah. I mean, that must have cost tens of thousands of pounds when you could probably do, you know, uh, you know, one or two psychedelic control therapy sessions, you know, for a few hundred pounds each. And then that, that person is then free from symptoms for months, if not years. Okay, you know, you might have somebody who has to have a top up every mm. six months. Okay, so what? You go, you go, you go and have a nice therapy session for six hours with a nice therapist in an afternoon every six months, and that just keeps you, you know, stable and relaxed. I mean, <laughs> no, we'll just we'll just repeat prescription you these nasty drugs, you know, which ultimately don't really fix you. They just sort of keep you in some sort of state. Yeah, it's funny that they don't question this, but I suppose. They're not taught to question. They're taught to accept these very black and white ideas, aren't they? And and I think a lot of that has got to do with the money. I suppose the money is in pharmaceuticals, isn't it? And so there's a payoff payoff there to keep these people, you know, on pharmaceutical drugs. And this is is the thing. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Rupert Sheldrake and uh, you know fantastic scientists super interested in the, the powers of sort of psychedelics and he was saying that when he was at I think he was Oxford maybe Cambridge anyway one of the two sort of top universities and he said to his professor that he wanted to study an area I can't remember what area it was I do apologize and his professor was basically like you know you're a bright intelligent man you know you could be head of department one day but if you go down this route, mm. you won't get anywhere. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, but this is where I want to go. This is this is this is an area that interests me. I want to explore this. And that's fine. That's your choice. But if you do that, you will not have a you will not have a career in in science. It's absolutely bonkers, isn't it? And you're just like, oh my god. So you know, this this is a thing. You know, you, you go to you go to study at med school. You go to study it. You know, become a scientist or a professor, and you have to follow this rhetoric. You have to do what they say. And if you deviate from that, you are ostracized from the community. Your reputation is destroyed. No, you, sorry, you can't free, free think. You can't go off and explore. This is how we do things. This but, is how we do things. And you're like, this is just... That's not science, is it, though? No. Because it's not a free... It's control. Science. Yeah, and it's, it's fear. Control. Because yeah. what, they, what, they, what they fear is just like, oh, well, we've spent so much time saying this is this. Oh, but actually, if we look at it a different way, we might be proven wrong. <gasps> no, yeah, no, no, no. That, yeah. that, that, that's shut gonna, it down. Yeah, shut it down. Shut it down. Yeah. No, it's it, I, but, you know, and this is this is the crazy world we live in. We would prefer to live in a society where we we're, we're running bullshit human construct belief systems. You know, just because that's what we do, mm. that's tradition, that's our it's culture. Safe. It's yeah. safe than to actually go. Actually, you know what? We want to know the truth. Let, let, let's let's have an adult conversation. Let's actually find the truth here. Mm. You know, let's not go on what people thought two hundred bloody years ago, because let's face it, the world has changed, and our knowledge and our understanding of the world has changed massively. Let's just have real, live adult conversations about where we are right now and how we can move humanity forward. Because yeah. as I keep saying, you know, we live in the twenty-first century Britain. You know, we're very fortunate to live in this amazing country, which is one of the wealthiest nations in the world. However. Fifty percent of us are going to get cancer. Mm. That is terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. 
That's terrifying. You've already had cancer. Well, kind Tumor. of. Tumour. Well, yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that's, that's scary. You know, so, what, you know. Yeah, absolutely. What is, what is going on? I had a friend of mine, like a year ago, contact me. And he's like, dude, he's like, um, he said, I went to hospital, and, you know, because my breathing was off. He said, I've got a tumour on my lung. Mm. And they're like, you know, they're giving me a year to live, man. 35 years old, young family. Wow. You're just like, shit. And he's like, Phew. he's like, I don't know what to do. And he chose to go down the cannabis oil route. And um, yeah, after nine months, he messaged me and he got, he had all disappeared. He got the all clear. Oh, wow. And, bless him. You know, like a fantastic result. I mean, he changed his entire life. Yeah, we think you have to. I, don't, I mean, yeah. I think people assume that when we're talking about cannabis and cancer, people assume that it's this cure like you can just take a bit of cannabis oil and it's just going to go away but there's you know there's a lot more to it than that to addressing a disease in the body you know there's a lot more that you can you can do to complement that mm. um particularly to address the inflammation and you know the issues just it's a really big thing to tackle and you do need to do exactly as you as your mate did and totally change everything yeah yeah he, ch- he changed everything because i yeah i mean it's a really valid point i mean obviously in the in the cannabis community there is this sort of this notion that cannabis oil can cure mm. cure cancer you hear it a lot and um it's i think it's a i think it's potentially quite a risky yeah so risky thing to scientifically what they've proved is that it can mm. cannabis can cause the cancer cells to just commit suicide to self-destruct but the conditions need to be right and the strain needs to be right and a new research coming out of from Dede from um, Israel his uh, don't know if you saw did you see the talk with the with the petri dishes with the different types of cancer and the different types of strain I think uh, roughly so he so for anyone that's not seen it his work's brilliant and he so he used different types of strains within these on these cancer cells and he found that one strain treated the breast cancer. One, stra- one strain treated prostate cancer. Another strain didn't treat any of them. Mm. And a, a different strain treated them both. So it's kind of like you also need. We also need to understand what is it about the different. I think you're supposed to say varieties rather than strains botanically, but the different varieties of cannabis the different components, the different cannabinoids, and combined with the terpene profiles of each individual one, which in that treats what? Because I think, uh, you know, we don't have that information. You know, he's one of the most famous and well-renowned scientists in the world, and he's not sure yet. So we've still still got very little understanding of what this plant's capabilities are, of, you know, of its entirety. We know that it works, we know that a lot of people have got relief from it, and we know that in cancer it can be effective. Um, but we don't. We also don't know why. In some cases, it isn't. So it's a bigger. It's a, it's I a bigger think, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I again feel, and I always come back to to the matter that we're all different. Mm. And I think this is this this is this is the big thing is that you know we look at human beings as as just this sort of machine. This, this this body and you know we all look the same so we all operate the same and we don't you know we don't at all and that and that's why you know you'll get people in this world who will smoke 40 cigarettes a day and drink a litre of whiskey a day and they've done so for 60 years 
and they'll fall asleep one night and die in their sleep at 85. Mm-hmm. You know, you then have people in their 20s who are fit, healthy, never done any of that sort of behaviour in their lives, and they drop down dead of a heart attack for whatever reason. It, I think, you know, humans are very, very individual, and, you know, we operate differently, and that is why, that is why we are very different and unique. And I think, I think having this standardised approach to dealing with conditions that we see being the same quite often don't work as you know we would think or, or as say the research sort of suggests you know because we are very very different and you know you see this in mental health where you know when we talk about trauma like we discussed earlier trauma is subjective you mm. know um you know a, a, a trauma could be you know a very loud bang which suddenly shocks you yeah you know to you know, for somebody, another trauma, you know, could be, you know, surviving a war zone, you know, two very different experiences and two experiences that two different people might go, oh, well, that's not trauma. You know, I, I experienced this. Yet, you know, the, the, the illnesses, the conditions, you know, which they then suffer can be very similar, mm. you know, from those two different types of trauma or shocks to the system. Yeah, so I mean that for me is I, I just think we just need to start to look at medicine and and how we treat people in a much more individualistic fashion. Yeah, I mean that's what I do with like, with like clients that I work with, like you know when we're working through mental health issues and behavioural issues, is that I don't have a I don't have a standardised program that I run through with people. I mean there is a, there is a model that you follow, but everybody's different. Mm. You know, because everybody's going to process things differently at different speeds. Everybody's trauma is completely subjective and personal to them. And you have to have that huge degree of flexibility to get people across the finishing line, which I enjoy because it means the work isn't boring because you're not just going through the standardized approach every single time with every single new client. It is it's a it's a journey. Mm. You're going on a journey with them to unpick and to to sort out what is going on in their in their minds and their lives. And I think exactly the same is for for physical mm. physical disease and, and issues that we experience. So I just I'd just like to see a, a greater degree of flexibility in in just the way we think about everything. <laughs> yeah, think. well, inflexible thinking is like the death of everything, isn't it? If you can't think yeah. flexibly or be flexible, then it's just those rigid. What's the point? Yeah, those rigid thought processes where sorry, this is the way. I've, this is the way I've always done it. Mm. I hate it when people say that to me. Oh, this is the way we've always done it, so we're not going to change. It's like the school education system over here. It's, it's the same system which was created, what, again, two, three hundred years ago, where we were trying to educate and train children to go and work in, you know, workhouses. Mm. You know, you're training kids to sit down quietly, listen to instruction, and do their bloody job. Yeah. And now we wonder, you know, I've worked in the schooling system, you know, as a consultant, you know, for a number of years, for about five years. And, um, you know, I was pulled in because they were just like, oh, well, what's wrong with these children? Why are these children not fitting our model? Why, why are we now experiencing so, more, so many children who are autistic or mm. don't fit into our model of how we want to teach kids? And you're like, have you ever thought about changing the system? I mean, this, this, system's, <laughs> this system, we, we have a Victorian education system. Do we live in Victorian times? Mm. Nope. And it's probably only going to work that system for a handful of the kids in, in a classroom. 
the rest of them are, are going to be sitting there with completely different needs. Yeah, yeah, and and that's it. And then and then instead of addressing the system, we're going, oh well, it's the kids. Mm. Right then, guys, we're going to pause the podcast there and split it into two, so it just makes it a little bit easier for you guys to listen to. So uh, part two is available now.